Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation with blockchain technology and the regulatory and policy implications in accelerating or stifling financial technologies and innovation. Among the topics we'll discuss are the role of government here in the U.S. in fintech as compared to other countries. We'll hear about how public policymakers are approaching and learning about financial innovation. And we'll talk about why creating a friendly regulatory environment for financial innovation is one of the most important initiatives in policy today. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Perry Ann Boring. Perry Ann is the founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, which first opened its doors in July 2014. Perry Ann currently oversees the Chamber's operations and government affairs and public policy initiatives. She previously worked in network broadcast news and as a Forbes contributor. After beginning her career working on Capitol Hill as a legislative analyst advising Representative Dennis Ross on finance, economics, tax, and healthcare policy. Welcome to the podcast, Perry Ann. Thanks. Great to be here. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today by talking about the Chamber of Digital Commerce. What is the mission of the Chamber and what's your role in the blockchain industry? Well, the Chamber of Digital Commerce is uh, a trade association. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we represent the what we call the digital asset industry. So this would be blockchain-enabled technologies. And we use those terms because we see a lot of different types of companies and business models in this space. Um, those who are using Bitcoin currencies or other digital currencies, but also um, this new asset class that's created through the blockchain. Um, so, so we work with these different types of business models that are investing and innovating in blockchain-based technologies. And the chamber is helping build the legal and policy frameworks uh, for these technologies. So we engage with legislators, regulators, public policymakers, and other stakeholders in the public policy process to help guide them in creating a a pro-growth legal environment for blockchain-enabled technologies. And, and you mentioned in the run-up to to the recording that you briefed Janet Yellen and a number of people at the Fed uh, yesterday, I believe, on the on the possible power of blockchain. What's your take on why our government needs to be knowledgeable and accepting of fintech and of blockchain in particular? So re- regarding the, the opportunity at the Federal Reserve, that was during, it was the Federal Reserve, the IMF, and the World Banks. It's their annual meeting of central bankers. About 90 central banks this year from around the world participated in, uh, in this annual meeting that they have. Um, so it was three days, one day at each, at each location. Um, day one was at the Fed, and we had the opportunity to get to meet. Terry Yellen, and we have some pictures with her. 
um, that we um, were able to release as well. Um, but our discussions were very much educational. And in uh, Janet Yellen's remarks last week um, at the Fed to her, her peers who are central bank regulators around the world was to be open to innovation because historically financial technologies, financial innovations have created greater access to capital, uh, have helped increase standard of living around the world and have made the financial system more open and more transparent over time. So now we're entering this age of blockchain technologies and some call it distributed ledger technology. Uh, this has incredible opportunities in many different areas of industry and government and in humanity. And from the government's perspective, it's a little early to start talking about putting forward true policies and, and regulation, although there is a bit of a regulatory framework. We're still in incredibly early days. At the Chamber of Digital Commerce, a lot of our work today is educational. It's helping regulators understand what this technology is, how it works, how entities that they may be regulating or are overseeing are beginning to use it or are what types of point of concepts they're experimenting with. And overall, how is this technology going to make its way into the financial system and other markets? So if we're focusing on the Federal Reserve or central banks, uh, two different ways that regulators need to, to know about this. One are we have a number of different financial institutions who are spending you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I would say within the next year, that number will look more like millions of dollars on um, investing in innovations and distributed ledger technologies. So uh, some of the lowest hanging fruit that's come out of these early studies are clearing and settling. There's been two um, studies about how clearing and settling can, um, uh, the banks think they can save billions of dollars a year by doing clearing and settlement on a distributed ledger. So from the bank regulator's perspective, we're going to start seeing this technology over time uh, make the back ends of Wall Street more efficient and effective. The other side of this would be, you know, what can blockchains do for regulators? And that's the other part of the conversation that we explored last week with these central bankers around the world is how can blockchains make the role of a regulator more effective. So if we're starting to clear and settle or do other financial transactions on this distributed ledger, there's the opportunity for regulators as well to have tools into greater, uh, greater access of the banking system. So it makes the entire process more transparent and it gives regulators more tools to monitor the safety and soundness of the financial system. So it's truly a win-win situation. And that was my biggest takeaway is we have the banks and they're saying we can save a lot of money if we use this technology, it's gonna make us more efficient. And then you have the regulators, but they get something out of it too. They get more transparency. So after our, uh, coming to this, you know, somewhat of epiphany over the past couple months of research is um, everybody wins from this. And um, the last side of that would be the consumer side. So if banks are saving a lot of money by using this updated technology, you know, you would, you would expect that saving would also go down to consumers as well. So um, you can even argue it's a win-win-win situation for the, the banks, for the consumers, but also for the regulator as well. So it's important that regulators are educated on how this technology is beginning to be implemented inside the banks, financial institutions, but also other industries, so they can be helpful in the process from moving from point of concept into actual implementation.
So Alex Tapscott was on the podcast a few episodes back, and he talked about some of the ways that he envisions blockchain enabling the next big wave of entrepreneurship. And one of the ways that he talked about was through funding. So in what he described as kind of a blockchain-based or blockchain-backed Kickstarter, what are some other ways you see blockchain enabling the next big wave of entrepreneurship and innovation? That's such a good question because I, I just I just gave you the statement of how blockchains can transform industry, government, and humanity, which is kind of an esoteric statement. But what do I mean by that? And and um, Alex is on to a good point there. He's talking about fundraising, so um, especially with the the, the um, with the new crowdfunding um, regulations, which has opened up new levels of businesses being able to access. Um, investors. We also have technology um, that's that's helping raise money, uh, folks raise money as well. And um, that's a good point. You now have a platform that now that you can trade tokens or assets or securities um, or currency without the need for a third party. That brings forward uh, a lot of opportunity in, in fundraising. And, and the, the DAO, DAO, um, is the most successful. Uh, experiment or, or version of this. Uh, but blockchain technology can hit so many different areas of the market. One of my favorite is the public sector use cases. As someone who's worked in government, uh, you understand that the government has this job of entrusting an incredible amount of, of their uh, residents' uh, data. I also, uh, I was in the White House the day that the Affordable Care Act was signed into law. This was a very uh, broad sweeping healthcare overhaul reform bill, which is completely changing the way healthcare and health insurance is being overseen and administered in the United States. And a lot of that is being moved uh, to the government's oversight which means the government is now going to be responsible for overseeing a significant amount of the healthcare industry. And part of that will include healthcare records. Part of the ACA also mandates electronic health records by a certain uh, amount of time. So there's this huge process of healthcare records being digitized. And uh, the process of storing and saving those records is incredibly important. Blockchain technology, with the implementation of smart contracts as well, potentially is a solution and a use case in the healthcare industry of securing, storing, and sending uh, uh, patient healthcare records in a more safe, uh, transparent, but also efficient way. Um, so public sector use cases are some of my favorite because I think the government can use all the tools they can get when it comes to storing this type of information. Um, and the healthcare industry is a big piece of that. Uh, but smart contracts, Internet of Things, land titling services, these are all, all possible or potentially possible with blockchain technology. And it's quite exciting to be able to be in the middle of this industry where you get to meet startups and technology companies who are at the cutting edge of building these new types of systems to really challenge e-commerce and build a better system of e-commerce. Yeah, definitely. Anyone who's... Uh who's been to the doctor's office or into a hospital recently knows that information doesn't always travel very well with you, even on the same visit from, from say, the, you know, intake to the ER to, you know, to, to outtake. Uh, so I'm sure some great opportunities for, uh, for changing the way that patients experience healthcare uh, today and in the future. 
And I would, you, you mentioned Alex and um, Alex and Don Tapscott have just released their new book called Blockchain Revolution. And they really do a fantastic job of breaking down some of these use cases for those who don't have a technology background or who may not be a crypto- cryptographer or a software developer, where a lot of this talk of blockchains and bitcoins and distributed ledger might be hard to understand or really make sense of. They've done a good job of explaining this really for a mainstream audience. And there's um, a whole explanation on identity. And I'll just give you a quick example of how blockchains can really change identity. So when you layer a smart contract on top of the blockchain, um, you can have what we're calling partitioned identity. And Don and Alex do a good job of explaining this in the book. Um, but essentially, all of your personal information um, uh, could be stored better and could be saved better. And you could actually have greater control of your information as a consumer. So my favorite example is buying alcohol. So when you want to either go to the bar or you're going to the liquor store or wherever you go, um, and you, you have to prove that you're of the age of 21 or whatever the age is in your jurisdiction. But normally when you, you enter a bar or you go into a liquor store, you're showing them uh, a lot more information than what they need to know. So you've just given this person uh, the address to your home, your passport number, depending on what form of government issue ID you're giving them, uh, you're giving them a lot more information than they need to know. Uh, and and that's um, it, it's an issue for for two reasons. One, because it really puts the consumer at a greater degree of exposing them, and also for the company that's collecting that information, they're now collecting more information than what they need, and they're now responsible for safeguarding that or getting rid of it in a responsible way. So um, with this partition, this idea of partitioned identity, which is something you can do with the blockchain. Um, When you enter in these types of e-commerce transactions, these types of transactions, you only need to share with with the vendor what's necessary for that exact transaction. So so this is a simple example of buying alcohol. All you need to do is verify that you're 21. They don't need to know where you live or anything else. But if you are going into, uh, say, a bank and you're looking to apply for a loan, they do need a little bit more information. So then you can give them a greater depth of your identity package through that process depending on what type of transaction you're entering into so it gives the consumer a lot more control and it also gives the companies the ability to have uh, more accurate data through the transactions that they're facilitating okay nice and you you mentioned well i guess i started off mentioning the tapscott's book you mentioned it again in the last answer but you, you spoke recently at the book party for alex and don tapscott's book and you talked about the topic of regulation and you think that regulation or lack thereof really is one thing that's necessary to maintain an innovative culture around blockchain in financial services. So what's different here in the States versus abroad when it comes to regulation in the financial services space? The United States is really uh, a unique place for financial services. Uh, Financial services is a highly, highly, highly regulated industry, but the United States makes this a lot more complicated than most jurisdictions around the world. So in the U.S., we have a number of different regulators. If you're either a financial institution or if you're in the business of money or fintech, um, instead of just having one agency that you have to go to and report to, Um, In the U.S., we have a lot. So I'll just name off a couple. Um, You have the CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. 
So if you're dealing with derivatives or swaps, all that goes through the CFTC. And then we have a whole other agency, that the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission. So if you're dealing with securities, there's a whole other agency you have to deal with. And if you're doing both, then you have to coordinate with those two agencies. Um, then you have the bank regulators, like the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which oversees national banks and other banks. You have the FDIC, which is you know, our pseudo and in, our banking insurance regulator. Um, you know, then you have um, uh, OFAC, which is sanctions, and then you have FinCEN, which is the the money transmitter, money laundering watchdog. Uh, so I just named off you know a handful of regulators that most companies in this space and banks and other financial institutions all have to engage with, which makes it incredibly difficult to navigate, especially in something that's new, like blockchain or distributed ledger technologies or virtual currency. These are new concepts. So there's very limited guidance as to how either a bank can integrate a blockchain or a distributed ledger into their organization. Um, there's very limited guidance about if I am trading a... Um, uh, you know, a, 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 any type of crypto-based asset, who's going to oversee that? Or for the agency who we think has jurisdiction over it, have they even put out any guidance on this? Maybe or maybe not. So the regulatory climate is incredibly um, difficult at the moment. It, it's hard to navigate for any company because we're truly blazing trails and the future of finance here. So there's not a guidebook for this. Um, and it's it's a little bit different in other countries. So um, most countries don't have this many regulators that oversee the financial system. So for example, in the UK, they have, they have one agency, the FCA, and, and mostly everything goes through the FCA, making it a lot easier to navigate. Um, there, I don't know any other country that has a more complicated financial regulatory environment than the U.S. And then the other piece of that that makes that difficult is that all these different regulators, they all have their own agenda as well. And they're all making their own definitions and their own assumptions and issuing their own guidance, all independent. They're not really very coordinated efforts. So again, I'll go back. The, the CFTC has said, you know, Bitcoin, so if we're talking about virtual currency, um, they've said that is is um, considered a commodity under their jurisdiction. And then you go to the SEC, and if you're you're using uh, Bitcoin or blockchain, they're looking at this through a, a whole separate lens of a security. And then you have FinCEN, which is this uh, money laundering regulator. They have put out guidance that says, we're going to regulate virtual currency as a currency. And then you go over to the IRS, our taxing agency, who says, um, we're going to tax this like property. So I just outlined four different ways you can define this, you know, this, uh, the same virtual currency piece or, or whatever you want to call it from commodity, security, to property, to um, uh, currency. It's um, incredibly difficult and incredibly hard to navigate. And, you know, and God forbid um, we have a conflict of law issue um, which would create even more um, headache for companies that have to navigate this. So 
Um, we're, we're still in early days of defining what the regulatory structure looks like, but it's incredibly important that the regulators are, one, engaged with the industry, that they understand the different types of business models that are out there, because there are commodity-type models, there are security-type models, and they're different, and they're going to look different from a regulator's perspective. Um, and it's important that if you're you know, building one type of product that's not getting looped into the wrong or is triggering the wrong types of, of, of regulations that would prevent it from flourishing. Um, so I could keep going on and on in this, but I think you get the point that uh, when you're pioneering in these new fintech technologies, uh, you have a lot of stakeholders in the public in the public policy process that you have to engage with um, and um, you know define your business with. So, so I, you know, I actually was going to ask um, about the consumer side of of blockchain slash Bitcoin, but I think I maybe want to steer away from that. Actually, I was going to ask, I, I bought a couple hundred bucks worth of uh, Bitcoin and I don't really know what to do with it, but uh, I, I think that's kind of a different conversation than the, than the one we're having here, uh, unless that's something that you feel like speaking to. Well, you know, I, I would be interested to know, well, one, why, why did you, you buy it and, and what, what are you doing with it now? So I, I bought it a few weeks ago after I did the, um, the, podcast interview with Alex Tapscott because I was intrigued. Um, and I bought $200 worth of Bitcoin on Coinbase, which has since appreciated in value, I think 50 or $60. Um, and um, I, I, it's something that we're working with a little bit on uh, Ethereum for one of our clients. So I really just wanted to do it to kind of understand you know, what the whole process is like of buying Bitcoin and then what you can do with it once you actually do. Um, but but I, I don't know what I can do with it now that I have it other than, than have it sitting there in my Coinbase account uh, accruing, you know, accruing value. Well, you could buy a, a rug or a couch on overstock.com. Okay. Or you could buy... Um, you could buy an airline ticket. There's about 100,000 merchants, um, including some airlines, um, that accept Bitcoin for payment. Um, from the consumer's perspective, it's important to educate yourself on how to use virtual currency before you just jump into the middle of this ecosystem because it's um, a completely different system than using a lot of traditional methods that most of us are used to, like a credit card or maybe a prepaid card or PayPal or Venmo because we're running on blockchain systems, which look completely different. They're, they're much more efficient, they're much more safe, but if you don't know how to use them, you could get tripped up. I would use the analogy of going from horse and buggy to an automobile. So if you've ridden a horse your entire life or you've ridden in a horse and buggy your entire life, um, before you just start driving a car, you certainly need to understand uh, some basic rules to the road and, and to automobiles before you jump into that because you could really get yourself hurt or, or in danger because you're just in a better, faster um, vehicle at this point. Um, so with virtual currency, from the consumer perspective, there are some um, red flags that you should be aware of and things you need to know. So Coinbase is, is really built for consumers, and they've done a very good job of making the consumer experience pretty seamless. So in the United States, that's um, a, a great place to, um, to buy and sell uh, uh, Bitcoin, but not all um, companies that have wallet services and, and buying and selling services 
are necessarily as robust as Coinbase. One thing uh, folks need to be aware of is public and private keys. So this is really the biggest consumer issue that we've seen is that when you're using Bitcoin or these other types of digital currencies that are blockchain based, you have what's called your public key and your private key. So your public key is kind of similar to your email address in that if you give that key or that address to anyone else, they can send you, they'll send you Bitcoin or money. Um, similar to an email address, if you give them your email address, they can send you a message and it shows up in your inbox. Um, now with email, you have a password. So you log into say gmail.com, you put your password in and then you can open up your system and then you can see all your messages. Well, in Bitcoin, you have what's called a private key and it kind of works like a password and you put that key in and then you can open up your wallet and you have access to the Bitcoin in your in your digital currency wallet, um, except for um, the backing up of those keys is really important to understand. So uh, if you lose that key, no one's holding that key for you, potentially. Um, some companies will back up keys, but they're taking on a greater degree of risk. So not all companies offer that service. Um, so you have this risk of losing your funds and it's um, really something you can only blame yourself for if you lost your password. Um, so it's important that consumers have um, knowledge of how public and private keys work. And if you don't want to be responsible for remembering your password, then you should look for types of services that back up keys that will store your key for you so you don't have to remember it. But other people want that greater degree of security. So that's one basic thing consumers need to understand uh, when using virtual currency. Um, from the consumer perspective, using Bitcoin today, like I said, there's about 100,000 merchants that use it. But the consumer case of using Bitcoin is... Um, today, I don't think it's all that interesting. I mean, greatly, especially in the United States, we have a payment system that works. I mean, we have credit cards, we have access to credit and other financial services, other basic financial services. This is just a new kind of novel thing um, where I really see, and I'm talking from my own personal opinions and my work and my research in this area, I think the greatest potential benefits are really on the blockchain side and as opposed to the Bitcoin side. So these would be more B2B type operations. It would be more back-end operations and functions, not necessarily front-end consumer uses. Um, I think if consumers are having to understand how Bitcoin or blockchain works, they're less likely to use it because it's going to put a greater degree of you know, complication in their lives. Um, so I, I think where we're starting to see the industry going is more towards how can corporations, how can the firm, how can financial institutions use this new distributed ledger to make the inner workings of the organization more efficient and save cost. And those types of activities is really where we're seeing the market going. So I certainly commend you for buying some Bitcoin. I, I, I can't give investment advice, but I think you should just hold them um, because of the price. Um, you know, I, I, I'm certainly in this uh, long and I'm very long on the price of Bitcoin. Um, but just for consumer uses, you know, I think today it's kind of limited or it's also just, it's just early. We just, there's not a huge market for, for, for Bitcoin from a consumer perspective today, but that may change. 
Sapirian, let me ask you about initiatives that you have underway at the chamber. You've created a number of different working groups and alliances. Can you share some details on what those are and who they're intended for? So the chamber has a number of different public policy working groups and initiatives, and I'll walk you through a couple of them. But these are groups that our membership has come to us on issues that they need help working on. So um, we have, and you can view all these on digitalchamber.org, but we have a best practices working group. So we just talked about consumers. Um, We're writing consumer best practices right now. Um, We're writing best practices in AML and compliance and data security and privacy, but this is really a way for the industry to come together and put their idea from a self-regulatory approach what should companies be adhering to or what types of standards should companies um, be using as they're offering these products and services to the market. So that's uh, the best practices working group. We also have a state working group. This is working on state laws and regulations. So there's a lot of states who are coming forward with different types of proposals or ways to regulate virtual currency and blockchain technologies. Um, There's 48 states that regulate money transmission today, which makes this incredibly complicated. So we have a whole group dedicated to navigating state laws and regulations, but also bringing consistency to that process as well. We also have what's called the Global Blockchain Forum. So this is the international arm of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, where we're coordinating with a number of different countries around the world on policies regarding blockchain technologies. So today we have uh, the UK, Singapore, Japan and Australia and the United States participating and we're actively signing up a a number of different countries as well. But this is to help make the global regulatory framework uh, interoperable, meaning if you're a a technology company in this space, more than likely you're global because this technology really doesn't see borders. So it's important that the policies in one country don't vary greatly to the next. Uh, We also have the Blockchain Alliance. This is a public-private forum that we've opened up with law enforcement. So there's been some issues of criminal activity and use on the blockchain. So our companies who are really looking to build a a future of the financial system, you really don't want to be looped into the same categories of companies like Silk Road who have no interest in being compliant with the laws. So... Um, The Blockchain Alliance is helping educate law enforcement on how to use blockchain technologies so they can be effective in their their roles from a law enforcement perspective. So we've helped bring in blockchain forensic and analytics experts and uh, taught them how to use these tools um, from a, a, a law enforcement perspective. And then we also have the Digital Asset Accounting Consortium, which may sound like the boringest one of all, no pun intended, but I actually think it's really interesting, Um, just the whole concept of if you're a company and you're holding Bitcoin or you're holding a digital asset, how do you account for that? How do you audit that? Um, These are really big picture questions that the industry is dealing with, and we have a number of different companies who want to go public. We also have public companies who want to use this technology, but getting an audit is a big challenge because there's no standard to digital assets on a balance sheet. So we have a whole group that's dedicated to building those accounting standards, and we have um, Deloitte and PwC, you know, two of the big four, who's contributing to that group as well. So we um, that's an overview of you know some of our working groups and task force. 
Um, we're launching two more over the summer, so uh, maybe we'll come back and announce those and explain more about other initiatives going on. But um, the, the Chamber is a community platform to build coalitions and different types of initiatives that affect m- multiple companies in this space. Okay, very nice. Well, it sounds like it will be a busy summer for you. We are very busy this summer. Yes, we are. We've got a lot of initiatives, so stay tuned. Okay, nice. Well, that's a great note to close on and uh, great to hear some uh, of of what you're working on over at the Chamber. And I look forward to hearing more about the additional working groups that uh, that you're working on putting together this summer. Perianne, thanks so much for joining us today to to talk about the future of digital commerce. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Perianne Boring or the Chamber for Digital Commerce, you can visit the Chamber's website at www.digitalchamber.org. You can follow Perianne on Twitter at at DC, and you can follow the Chamber on Twitter at at ChamberDigital. Thanks again to Perianne Boring for joining us for this episode of the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune in next time And we're excited to have Gary Jackson of Codescope on to talk about security in the software development space. Among the topics we'll discuss are why security is of paramount importance when it comes to developing software, how Codescope is working to help developers of all stripes build more secure software from the start, and the role their new developer tool called Jax plays in that mission. Thanks again for joining us. And we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Stitcher Radio, or SoundCloud. And you can also download our very own iOS app in the iTunes App Store.